You know, when you're a 19-year-old kid interviewing for a full-time internship with a financial executive from IBM, two emotions are prominent. Are you ready? Excitement. You're excited because this is an incredible opportunity. You're sitting down with an executive from a Fortune 100 company, but yet, at the same time, you're full of complete and utter dread, aren't you? At least if you have any understanding about who you are in the world at the age of 19. Right? You're scared out of your mind because you realize that you're sitting in the presence of an experienced expert, and yet you, on the other hand, are anything but an experienced expert. And here this guy is asking you questions about your experience that would get you such an internship. You recognize that you're simply a student, right? <laughs> you're not an expert and that you humbly realize that you've got a lot to learn, and yet you sit across the table from this man. And so, as I was approaching the text tonight, I had a similar feeling that I did when I was 19. I had the feeling of excitement. What an opportunity we have together to sit and consider the, the gospel the supremacy of Jesus Christ in relationship to our marriages and our families. What an incredible opportunity. We cannot talk enough, we cannot say enough, we cannot teach enough on, we cannot consider enough the supremacy of Christ in the gospel in relationship to our marriage and families, can we? This is good. And yet at the same time, as I approach this text in Colossians, as excited as I am, I'm scared out of my mind. Stark said, are you okay on the wind? That's the guy at the sound booth. Are you okay? Everything all right? You're not mad at me, are you? Of course not, I'm not mad at you. Who could be mad at Matt Stark, right? I'm just in that sense as I approach this text tonight. The weight, the gravity, recognizing that I'm speaking on a topic that I'm not an expert in, in any way, shape, or form. Yes, I've been married for 15 years. I have a, a child 10, 7, and 5. But look at I am a student that sits at the feet of Jesus, the real teacher. Right? And so as I come to this text, I come to it with humility and excitement. And, and I would hope that you would as well that you would come to this passage eager, ready to listen, to learn, to reconsider the supremacy of Christ, the influence of the Gospel in relationship to marriage and family, but at the very same time that we come to it with humility, reverence, and fear, recognizing that no matter where we are in the process of marriage and family, man, we're still learning. We fumble the ball often and the enemy recovers, right? Or the, the, the opposition recovers. And so we come to Christ with excitement tonight and 
with fear. How does the supremacy of Christ, which we have been looking at in Colossians, relate to our marriages and our families? How does the gospel shape the way we relate to one another? Those questions we ask as we approach the text in the third chapter of the book of Colossians, verses 18 through 21. Love for you to follow along with me. Paul speaks these words, writes these words. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Amen? This is God's word. I think it's an understatement to say that we live in a day and age where culture is reshaping, or at least attempting, to reshape the mold of marriage. Culture is trying to redefine family. You correct me if I'm wrong. Tell me I'm crazy to say that the world in which we live is graying the issue of marriage and family. The husband, the wife, the children, and the parents' theories and ideas and philosophies are out there today trying to reshape the mold in which marriage and family was made to be shaped. Surely I could go on and on for hours about just those realities. So we live in a day and age where that's trying to be reshaped. But we look today as the people of God to the word of God. And we recognize that the scriptures and Christ himself, the person and work of Jesus, are the true thing, the true mold that sets the shape for our marriages and families, right? It's the original mold, and the original mold is still good. We don't need a new mold. We turn to the scriptures that set the shape for what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a husband, how to relate as children, and how to engage your family as a father and a parent. Christ, continues to set the shape for marriages and families. He is the mold. And if you think about it, that's really what this whole book has been about, Colossians, right? It's been about the supremacy of Jesus in all things. It's been about Christ, right? All things were made through Him and for Him. If all things 
have been made through him and for him, what are we to say about marriage and family? That it was made through him and it was made for him. He sets the shape for our marriage and our family. Bottom line, it's an understatement as well to say that the marriage and the family is a, of primary concern for the living God. And therefore, it should be a primary concern for the people of God. Our marriages, our families are a primary concern. Not a tertiary one, not even a peripheral issue, as if there was something else that we should be concerned about when we look at the people of God more than the marriages and the families that really make up the fabric of the people of God. Marriages and families. And so they must be a primary concern for us. But why? What's the big deal? And forgive me for a moment for just setting somewhat of a biblical framework for what a marriage is and what a family is before we even talk about these commands. I think it's important that we set a, a biblical framework for what marriage and family is so that we understand the proper context for such commands about how we're to relate in marriage, right? And so again, because Scripture shapes the mold, because Jesus shapes the mold, let's see some other places that, that Christ addresses these things. Why such a big deal? Well, Scripture teaches that marriages primarily, understand that word, primarily represent the covenantal relationship between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And later on it talks about, again, just like Colossians, about husbands loving their wives and giving themselves up for her. Just as Christ did. That's what marriage is. That's why it's a primary concern. Because it primarily represents the relationship between Christ and the church. Listen to this quote from John Piper in his book, This Momentary Marriage. If you want to read a good book on marriage, pick that one up. Write it down. This Momentary Marriage. He says this, Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenantal relationship to his redeemed people, the church. Therefore, the highest meaning of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why you're married. If you hope to be, this should be your dream. Bottom line, your marriage is not about you, ultimately. It's not about you and her and, you know, you and him. It's about Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus is at stake in your marriage. Scripture teaches that families are a primary context 
for discipleship and mission. Do you hear that? Marriage is a primarily a representation of Christ in the church, and families are a primary context for discipleship and mission. We talk about that often here, that we're not relegating the responsibility for discipleship to a particular ministry in the context of a local church, but we're looking at the parents, the family as the primary context for raising up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, as Jeremy read, is a call to worship. These words are to be upon your hearts, right? You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit at your house. Families are a primary context for discipleship. Psalm 78, a compelling text. He, speaking of God, established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel. He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. That's huge. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep His commandments so that they know who God is and ultimately obey Him. Families are a primary context for discipleship and mission, right? Ephesians 6, fathers, don't, don't uh, provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Have I said enough about this? Actually, no, but I'm moving on. <laughs> you know, your family is an MC. Maybe a simpler way to put it. An MC is kind of language we use to say missional community. It's short form, which is really right, a community of people who orient their lives around the gospel in a particular place, seek to value God, truth, love, and mission above all else, and begin to live in particular outcomes as a disciple empowered by the Spirit, trying to reach every man, woman, and child in their geography. That's a family. That's what a family is. Our vision and our understanding of family is so small. But we see that family is a primary context for discipleship and mission. It's a missional community. That's why marriages and families matter to God. Because of what they are and what purposes they serve in God's kingdom plans in this world. Right? representation of Jesus, training up children in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And so that, although short relative to what could be and should be said on the matter, sets kind of a, a mini framework, if you will, to help us understand some of these commands and put them in their proper context. And so we turn now, recognizing that, that Christ is what sets the shape for how we relate in marriage, right? He is the mold that sets the shape for how we are to relate in marriage and in family. And so we turn to verse 18. It says, wives, submit to your husband." Talk about a loaded term in the history of the church in 2014 
The word submission, we hear it often, we joke about it sometimes. It's used as a weapon often by people. It's, con it's uh, often misunderstood. So let's ask the question first of all, when Paul says, wives, submit to your husband, what exactly is Paul saying? Well, the word submit simply means, and I'm quoting a commentator by the name of Peter O'Brien, he says this, to humbly and voluntarily place oneself under another. It's a literal, literal phrase. Humbly, voluntarily place yourself under another. It's a posture. It's an attitude of the heart, which of course gets lived out in practicalities and in decisions, but it's a posture. It's a humble willingness to place yourself under another. And so what Paul is saying to the wives is, please, out of humility and in voluntary form, place yourself under your husband in attitude and in posture. You compare that to the ultimate phrase of, of verse uh, 20, which is, is kind of a, an ultimate term, obey in everything. Obey your parents in everything. Submit has within it the nuance of, of humility and the voluntary nature of it. Right? So that's what Paul is saying here. It's not a, a forceful bending of the will. It's not coercion and manipulation. It doesn't mean that sometimes you won't disagree with your husband. It doesn't mean that you won't have dialogue about certain decisions. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that the husband always gets what he wants. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you don't work together as a team. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that the husband is worth or more valuable than the wife. It doesn't mean that at all. You see, we're good at attaching worth, value, and dignity to role and function. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. We do that. Right? That's what we do. We go, oh, wow, his role, his function is X. He must be better than me. That's not what the text is saying at all. What he's saying is this. Humbly, voluntarily, based on what marriage is, and Ephesians goes on to explain this more, right? Based on that, voluntarily and humbly submit yourself. Place yourself under your husband. And now we have to ask the question, why? It's fitting, right? It's fitting in the Lord. Submission fits. Where the lack of submission from the wife to the husband just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It's not fitting given their relationship with the Lord together. It's, it's like putting a, a square into a round hole to not submit. Submission fits because it is Christ-like. Do you know that 1 Corinthians 15 uses the same word about Jesus' posture of submission to the Father? Are we to say that the Son is not as valuable as the Father? No. But what you see is Jesus in equal value, worth, and dignity is willing in relationship to the Father to submit, to place himself under the care, direction, will, and order of the Father. It's just like Jesus. So when Paul says to the women, uh, to the wives, to submit to their own husbands, he's saying, be like Jesus. 
who submits to an equal, who places himself under. Also, submission fits because it's just simply classic Christian community, isn't it? It's just the way we roll. Ephesians 5.21, at the end of a section on one anothering, we see that, that Paul ends that. He says what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission, that same word, is just simply Christian community. It's what we do. To be Christian is to be in submission to others. It's that attitude of saying, you know what? I'm going to place myself under it. I'm going to lay my preferences down. I'm going to serve the greater picture here. I, out of reverence for Jesus, am going to say, I can take second place here, right? That's what, that's what is happening here. That's what we do as Christians. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But ultimately, I think that the most compelling reason is just simply the definition of it. The marriage relationship is a parable, as Piper said. It's a parable that puts on display another relationship. It's not about you and your husband. It's not about staying in love, he says. It's about putting on display the covenantal relationship with God for all the world to see. That's how God loves his people, and that's how his people submit to their Lord. That's the glory of marriage that we so often miss. And that's why wives are called to submit to their husbands. Christ sets the shape for how we and wives are to relate in marriage. But not only the wife, but also the husband. Christ sets the shape for how the husband is to relate in the context of of marriage. And I think we need to understand this, men, that this Colossians 3.18, as we begin to address you, is not a weapon. It's not ammunition to get what you want. Some of the ladies might say amen to that. No? It's not a weapon. And I must confess, there are times in moments of frustrations where, boy, I want to use it. Men, any, any, nobody want to admit that? Uh, no, I'm a perfect husband. Um, I always love my wife sacrificially. Look at it. It's there. It confronts us, right? We love. What's, what's our, what are we prone to do? Focus on what other people need to do, right? We're good at that. We love to remind others of their responsibilities and then push our own to the side. But we cannot do that here, men. Let the Scriptures speak to the wives and let the Scriptures speak to you. And what do they say? You're called husbands to love your wives. And when we say love, we're not talking about loving your wives like you love the Pittsburgh Steelers and tacos. We're talking about a completely different word when we talk about love. We're not talking about something like some sort of infatuation, some sort of emotion that overtakes us. You know, love at first sight. Wow, that's great, man. I love her. She's, she's fun, right? Not just limited to some sort of attraction. That's not what we're talking about when we say love your wives. All those things can be a part of expressing and enjoying your love with your spouse. But that's not what it's getting at. When it's talking about love, it's not talking about feelings of infatuation or simply attraction. It's talking about the love of God in Christ being ex given to you and being expressed through you to your wife. 
the very covenantal love of Jesus Christ, the unconditional commitment, the unwavering, stubborn refusal to not give her unceasing care and devotion, protection, provision, and leadership for her good to the glory of God. Right? That's, when we say love, we're using that word agape love. Man, we love to run that word in Christian Christianity. The, ooh, it's all about agape, baby. You know what that is? Commitment. It's work. It's decisions every day to serve and to sacrifice and to give yourself up for her, as Ephesians 5 says. You're giving yourself up. You're laying yourself down for her good. And for her joy, for her provision and her protection, you're called to have an unceasing devotion to your wife. Regardless of how she looks, regardless of how you feel, regardless of how long your workday was, that is your responsibility in the marriage. Because that's what Christ does for His people. And you represent that. The supremacy of Christ is at stake. In our marriage. He goes on to say, and do not be harsh with them, right? There is a thread that runs through this text that, about authority and how, the use of it. Right? The, the, that authority and the, uh, how, he use, how, the, how the person uses that authority and how the people are responding to it. So we believe unapologetically in the head of the husband in the home. Headship. That the responsibility lies on the husband to shepherd and care for his wife and his family. We unapologetically embrace that as taught in Scripture. We believe that puts on display the glory of God most accurately and at the same time provides the joy that we long for in marriages and families. But that place of headship is not to be misused, not to be un, uh, stewarded improperly for our own good, for our own preferences, men. It's been given to us, not that we would be harsh with sarcastic words, guilty. Some of us can be horrifically sarcastic with our wives, can't we? We can use the power of words to discourage and irritate and tear down. Do you know the word for sarcasm means literally to tear the flesh? That's what it means. Tearing the flesh. That's kind of what it feels like, right? There's no room for demanding from your wife. No unreasonable expectations. As my wife often says to me in our logistical dialogue about how we're going to get things done during the week, she says, I'm not superwoman. Any ladies got an amen for that? Right? I'm not superwoman. Obviously, I thought you were, you know, so. We can't have unreasonable expectations. We can't place that on our spouse. And we cannot be unaware or unsympathetic to their needs, men. 
That means we can't ask a lot of her and not be providing for her, right? What goes in comes out, right? So if so much is always be coming out, like output, 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 but we're not providing ways in which your spouse or our wives can, can, can have input, something that recharges, something that gives her just a refreshment, something that connects her to Jesus. Some of the simplest things that we can do are just give our wives 20 minutes alone, quiet with Jesus, and take the kids. You can see the issues we have in the Maisie home. Give your wives time with God. Take the kid. Stop talking too much. That's my problem. Let her talk to Jesus. Right? Get off the couch, get off the phone, hang with the kids, fold some laundry. Oh, I did go there. Yes, I did. Fold some laundry. Here's a crazy one. It's going to scare you, men. Are you ready? You ready? Let her go out. And just stay home with the kids. Sometimes she just needs to go out. Sometimes she needs to go shopping. Well, that's not a good steward of our resources. Come on, man. Let her go shopping sometime. Let her take a bath. Let her read her Bible. Let her do something that helps her just be refreshed and cared for. That's, I'm going simple. I'm somewhat comical here. The point is we're aware of, we're attentive to, we're sympathetic, we're compassionate men, we're listeners. So as to not be harsh with them in the stewarding of the authority that God has given to us. Christ, set, Christ sets the shape for marriage, how husbands relate, how wives relate. Now we see children. I'm going to speed up a little bit here. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. The call of the life of the child is very clear. Children are expected by the Lord to obey everything that their parents ask them to do. And I'm not going into the, what if they tell me to run across the street and, you know, I'm not going there. You get the point. Children are expected in the Lord to obey their parents. Even if they disagree, even if it's difficult, even if it's, uh, it's not something they're interested in doing, right? Even if it doesn't make any sense to us, children, the Lord has called us to obey. And again, we're back to authority, aren't we? We don't like authority. We don't like to be told to do. We're born that way. We like to be autonomous. We like to call the shots. We think we've got it all figured out. And authority is really an enemy to us. It's not a friend. And so children come face to face with that, with authority. But what we see here is also promise, don't we? Why should the children obey everything? Right? It's for it's pleasing unto the Lord. Children, if you're wondering, teenagers, if you're wondering, how can I know for sure that I'm pleasing the Lord with my life? It's to obey your parents in everything. Right? That's, that's what God has done. God has given you your parents to help teach you what it means to believe and trust 
and obey even when we don't feel like it, the Lord. Right? Because at the end of the day, isn't the, the playing field leveled? Aren't we all children trying to figure out how to obey our loving Father in heaven? Right? And isn't that why we have parents? Right? The authority over us to give us freedom to, to, to love us and be attentive to us and to see who we are and, and to, and to kind of let us run, but at the very same time to set for us boundaries that are protective and gracious and loving so that we would please the Lord, and as Ephesians 6 says, so that it may go well with us in the land. That's an old covenant promise. Children that obey their parents are seeing that, that parents, although annoying often, <laughs> and so out of touch with the real world today, have been placed there by the Lord as to teach and to provide and protect, teach them how to submit to and enjoy their obedience to the Lord himself. So children, this is what you are called to do. And let's be clear, all those in the 18 and under bracket here who are wrestling with life, the world will tell you that freedom and joy is found in not having an authority over you. Freedom and joy is found and being able to do whatever you want, when you want, with whom you want, without any hindrance or obstacle in the way. But that is a lie from the enemy. That is not true freedom, and that is not true joy. True joy is when we run with, with just all we've got inside the context of God's revealed will in Scripture, and that is given to us through our parents. Obedience to our parents in everything is what gives us joy and freedom. That's freedom. Christ sets the shape for how children relate to their parents. And now we see the final verse here. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, right? We see uh, response to authority, use of authority, response to authority, and we're back to use of authority. Men, we find ourselves here in cooperation with our wives and the women. Face to face with a God-given responsibility once again. We are stewards and agents of the authority of God in the lives of our children. And we can use that authority, we can steward it well, or we can steward it very poorly. We have the power to parent and shepherd and use the authority of God as an agent of God in such a way to encourage and support and build up, literally train up a child in the way they should go. What an awesome opportunity we have. But at the very same time, we can leverage and steward that same authority, that place, in such a way to crush them and to provoke them to discouragement. We have that potential. It's a tenuous place. It's a place of extreme responsibility. Let us not take these things lightly or loosely, but may we feel the gravity and weight of it, men. This is what we are called to do. Not provoke our children lest they become discouraged. 
or Ephesians says, not to provoke them to anger, right? We can use our authority to provoke within them an anger. And the opposite of that is to train them up, to, to instruct them in the discipline, in the teaching, in the truth of Scripture, in the Lord. See, I hope you're seeing it now, that who we are, all that we have, right now, it's all a gift from God. Our marriages, our children, our home, everything about it is a gift from God that we're stewarding, that we're managing in such a way to carry out the purposes of God in raising up disciples, in sending them on mission, or we're doing something completely different. And I fear that's where we're at. I fear we've got a twisted understanding of what marriage and family is. I fear that when, when the people of Liverpool, Baldensville, and Clay look at our families, that they might not see the beauty and glory of Jesus. They're going to see something else. One of my greatest fears is this, that my children will not know and love Jesus with all of their heart. That's my responsibility. Again, I can't control them. I can't make them do anything. My tendency is to want to do that. But I'll tell you what, I can't. But I'll tell you, this is my greatest fear. That my children do not love and serve the Lord. And it's how I steward my authority in their life. Whether to discourage or encourage them. It's how I shepherd their lives. It's how I instruct them and teach them. Rather than negotiate with them. Rather than, you know giving them first place, letting them dictate everything, all that. God's purposes are at stake. Bodhi Bauckham says this in his book, Family Shepherds. Write it down. Family Shepherds. Write it down. Family Shepherds. He says, from Genesis to Revelation, we see a clear picture of the role of the family in redemptive history. And the role of the father in the family. This is no small matter. The Bible leaves no room for fatherhood that doesn't take seriously the responsibility of raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our calling is clear. We must shepherd our families. Ted Tripp says in his book, Shepherding a, a, a Child's Heart. Write it down. Ted Tripp. Shepherding a child's heart. As a parent, you have authority because God calls you to be an authority in your child's life. You have authority to act on behalf of God. And yet we often can use that authority to crush them. You know the difference, don't you, man? You've seen it in their eyes. I know I have. I see the difference of a child who hears the discipline and instruction, the truth of Scripture with, strong, with strength and firmness, with an immovableness, if you will, and still is frustrated, not interested, what hugs me and embraces me in the midst of their frustration. And then I've also seen the broken spirit when volume is a weapon, right? 
when feelings or emotions are a don't you know you've hurt mommy or daddy is a weapon to crush them into really for our own convenience often when we're just not excited about the way they're behaving. We want to manipulate and control their behavior as Tripp talks about in his book. Instead of really bring them to the foot of the cross and see the grace of Jesus Christ, we know the difference when we steward our authority in a way to crush them and provoke them to discouragement. And we know the difference between when we just journey together to Jesus and say, the truth is what it is, son. We're going there together. We're ident- I identify with your sin. Let me apologize with you for me falling short of the glory of God. Let's journey together to Jesus and let's both repent of our sin together. There's a big difference there. Some of the best advice I ever received was when your kid's struggling with their sin, let them know that you get it, that you understand it, that you wrestle with similar issues, and let's go to Jesus together for grace. Versus the brow of frustration and anger that just wants to force their hand and fit them into your mold. Did I say that? Fit them into the image that you would have them to be. Perfect behavior, perfect haircut, this, that, and the other. Basketball, soccer, whatever it is. You want to fit them into your mold. But that's not what you're there for. You're there to fit them and set them into the mold of Christ. Sometimes the best thing you can do, dad and mom, To bring your child to Jesus is to repent yourself and say, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I need your forgiveness. They see the gospel there. They see Jesus there. And now sin is not between you and them, right? Sin is this way. You're on the same team, both seeking Christ together. Christ sets the shape for how we relate in marriage and family. He's sufficient, right? He's supreme. We don't need a new definition. We don't need a new mold. We have a good one. 20 years ago, I saw this cute little thing, get on the bus, you know, first day at Faith Heritage for me, should have been the last, no, I'm just, uh, first day at Faith Heritage for me, and I said to myself, well, she's kind of cute, who would have thought 20 years later this, right, right, see, in the moment, we're not thinking vision, when we see the cute girl, Right? When we see the cute guy, we're, we're thinking of ourselves. We don't have a vision for marriage and family. So we start off often in a relationship with all the wrong understandings and definitions. And, and really what we do is, is we're, we're missing the point altogether, often. You know, one close friend of mine says, I think, fair, fairly appropriate, right? Pretty gets you in the door, right? That's fair. You know, that's life. But who would have envisioned 20 years later, a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, wherever you are now in your relationship, maybe you're single, 
Maybe you're married, maybe you have kids, maybe you don't have kids. Wherever you are, please don't miss the point. Don't miss the mold. Don't allow the world, the culture in which we live to redefine and reshape it. Let the scriptures give you that. Let the word of God, the supremacy of Christ, right, give you a vision for your relationship at home. Some of you need to sit down and think biblically and theologically about a vision for your marriage and for your family. Doreen and I did that 19 years into our relationship last year. It's been helpful. It's been helpful. Because we often miss the point. It becomes so easily about us, you and me, living happily ever after, enjoying one another, having, living on some adventure. All those things are great, but it's not what marriage is for. It's not what it's all about. And when we miss the point and we walk down a different road, we don't just miss the point, we minimize the joy. And that's really why I'm preaching today. That's why this text is given to us, to maximize our joy in marriage and family for the maximization of the glory of God. That's what it's all about. Your joy. Christ sets the shape for marriage and family. And when He sets the shape, it maximizes our joy in Him. Amen? This is good. Let's pray together. Lord, we give You praise and thanks. Your Word is true. It confronts us. It, it comes to us. It, it sets the shape for us about the glory, the prominence of marriage and family. Lord, we confess to You that we have so often missed the point. And I wonder if there's anybody here tonight that needs to repent, that needs to run to You, recognize that they've been confused and didn't see it. Maybe even, Lord, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't see it. And tonight they're saying, yes, I want that. I want our marriage to be a representation of Christ in the church. I want our, our family to be a place for discipleship and mission. I pray now that the Spirit of God will work in the hearts of men and women here. That the families and marriages of Renovation Church, all of Christ's people in this county and throughout the world, would be that. So that all would see who you are because it's all about Jesus the supreme nature of Jesus who he is what he's done may that be on display may that be represented and may all of the people praise him for it that's our heart tonight Lord there's forgiveness that needs to be given tonight between husband and spouse I pray that that would occur there's any fears and insecurities that need healing. I pray that you would do that tonight. If fathers need to confess anger to you and frustration and laziness and apathy, I pray that tonight that you would give them freedom and assurance that your spirit is there to help. Whatever the issue tonight, Lord, for your glory's sake, for the joy of your people, have your way. Christ's name.